think together about how we actually, um, yeah, can shape our lives together, live our lives in the world and uh, bear with each other in uh, disagreement. Whoa! Okay. Did you like that? It's, uh, it's all downhill from here, presentation wise. <laughs> Okay, so in one, one sense, it doesn't, uh, it's not a big surprise to talk about the idea of the Bible as a story. But maybe growing up or maybe as we've um, you know, read through scripture for ourselves, we often think about the idea of Bible stories. And Bible stories are about Bible heroes, the heroes of faith and so forth. And we tend to sometimes have a, a kind of a, a fragmented view of the Bible. But underneath all of that, we will have some idea of what we think it's all about. We'll have some notion about what we think the biblical story is. But sometimes that notion that we have might be a little truncated. It might be a kind of a shrinking of what the biblical story is all about. We may believe in things which are the high points. We might think, yes, creation. Yes, we think about um, the fall into sin. Yes, we think about uh, the death of Jesus and then... What? And we end up having this view of the Bible, I think, which is a little bit like this. I've helpfully put in some bookmarks. But we often think of the Bible a bit like this. I'm just going to skip to a picture. Here's, as I went on the internet uh, during the last couple of weeks, looking at this, looking for an idea, uh, you know, how do people present picture-wise the idea of the story of salvation? How do you feel about that particular picture? You all know I'm setting you up for a trap, so no one's going to dare open their mouth at all. And you might say, okay, yeah, some high points there. Yep, that's a great summary of the story of salvation. But think about it for a moment. What does that mean? And I've, I've done this once before. You might remember it. But imagine what you've got there. You've basically got Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3. And then you've gone to the end of, we'll say, the first gospel, Matthew. And you haven't really given an account of what all of that was about. So what does that even mean? Is it a great big, long example that some people have thought about telling how people are sinners, which they are. But is that all that's about? Like, uh, people are sinners. They're still sinners. They're still sinners. And we have a you know, 26-week series on um, why people are sinners till we get to Matthew. And, of course, the life of Jesus isn't necessarily uh, implied there either, is it? It's straight to the death. It's like humans, sin, cross. That's the story of salvation. It's a truncated view. Now, I know nobody really, or do they, really thinks it's quite like that. But when we lose sight of what the big picture of the Bible is about we actually don't give the proper due to those particular themes. We don't actually give a proper due to the importance of God's creation. We don't really necessarily understand the seriousness and problem of sin and how it needs to be overcome. We actually don't really understand what the um, death of Jesus is about. So um, we've been doing uh, Luke's Gospel in our Bible study and one of the challenges that we always go through is to think, 
what's going on here? Why is this so Israel-focused? Or why is it, you know, talking about things that don't necessarily leap immediately to application? So part of it is that realising that when we're looking at the Bible as a story, we're listening in. It is a story for us, but it's not a story in the first instance about us. It's a story about God and his people, which we're being drawn into, which we've been invited into. We've been incorporated through our faith in Christ into this story. But it's not about us first and foremost first. I think I just... That was a redundant first. Okay? So let's have a little bit of a think about, um, about this. We're setting up the series. I'm just going to do a little bit of a quick overview thinking about the biblical story. Next week we're going to be thinking about what does it mean to have a Christian worldview? And one of the questions that come up commonly when, think when someone has to give an account of what they think the universe is about, what they think their life is about, what they think their relationships, their family, their work, all those different things, what are they actually about? Or don't they matter? Maybe there's a story of salvation where creation, people are bad, that's how. I just I say that because if I don't emphasise that, then people will think that I don't think that. But it's not actually the whole picture. It's not actually uh, the right picture. So, anyway, what does it actually mean to answer the questions about what our life is like, what it's about? And we're going to be going through, um, if you've been looking at the uh, message series coming up, you'll see the, the titles working our way through the biblical story, thinking about how do these big themes actually shape the way that we think about the world. Okay, let's zip back a little bit. Now, Mark, I've, I've got this in especially small font this time. I just ask your forgiveness. Where are you, Mark? There you go. I ask your forgiveness straight, straight up. Okay, so let's see if we, let's see if we can uh, see it. Okay. Here we go. I'm just going to re read this one out. So apologies for a couple of uh, long quotes here. Okay. Now, can you, who can't read that? Can my sister read it from the back? Good. That the Old Testament tells a story needs no defence. The point is much greater, however. The Old Testament tells a story as the story, or rather as part of that ultimate and universal story that will ultimately embrace the whole of creation, time and humanity within its scope. In other words, in reading these texts, we are invited to embrace a meta-narrative, that is a grand narrative. And on this overarching story is based a worldview, like all worldviews, and meta-narratives, claims to explain the way things are, how they have come to be so, and what they will ultimately be. It is a story that is a rendering of reality, an account of the universe we inhabit and of the new creation we are destined for. So we live in a storied universe. That's actually no surprise, even that last comment, there is a, a storied universe. We love stories. We, you know, I, Libby and I got a little addicted to sort of Scandinavian crime dramas, um, but you just want to, you want to actually see a, a problem, um, a struggle, some kind of resolution and a, and a happy ending. You don't always get that precisely with the Scandinavian crime drama. But most of it, most of what we hope for is actually seeing a struggle uh, resolved, seeing a plight, uh, a solution applied to that plight, a resolution to a crisis or something like that. 
And it all depends on where the story ends up, in effect. Um, you can be left with a sense of mystery and wondering and curiosity about where a story is going, but if it doesn't reach a good resolution, you kind of think, oh, why did I bother? And it will depend on what sort of universe maybe some you think you inhabit. Because a lot of our stories maybe fall flat in life, don't they? And we look for a resolution beyond, uh, beyond death. We hope that sometimes there's a resolution in life, and sometimes there's one that we have to wait for. Um, if you if you like American uh, movies, then maybe you'll uh, end up having something like a uh, person gets kidnapped, um, they're with the terrorists and they've got a bomb and they've strapped a bomb to them and they need to be rescued and you need to go and disarm the bomb, etc. And if it's an American movie, you'll go through quite a lot of excitement and a bit of CGI and big budget, whatever, but you get to the end and the hero will, by the skin of his teeth, get in, defeat all the enemies, fix up the bomb, it's all good. If it's a French movie, um, the hero will, it'll be everything the same, except at a lower budget, uh, everything the same, get to uh, the end, get stuck in traffic, um, run the last three blocks and the bomb blows off and the end, because it's kind of like dark. French existentialism, um, there is no meaning, we can't be you know, guaranteed that there's a happy outcome. We can't be guaranteed a happy outcome necessarily if this world um, run by the powerful, run by the economy, uh, with all their sort of a secular and imminent interests, there is no guarantee that a story will end up well. The biblical story gives us the hope, based on God's acts in history, that the way God will finally act at the end will be the great resolution that we've been waiting for. It will be the solution to the plight that we find ourselves in. It will be, yeah, the resolution of our crisis. Okay, so a little bit more about this idea of the, bit, the big story. Just remember, of course, as well, that the Bible's not all stories, okay? So what we're not saying is if you started at the book of Genesis and made your way through, read everything all the way through, you would be reading, strictly speaking, all the time, stories. There are lots of stories, but also there's commands, there's prophecies, there are parables and all sorts of things like that. Um, lots of different genres. But you might say that in the background, sometimes in the foreground, but in the background there is a sense that there is a story happening, or a drama, you might say, and that we are, in some sense, caught up in this drama, that we are participating uh, in this drama, in this big story. Okay. Now, the next important point, before we start talking more about ourselves and that story, is what is probably a fairly... Um, Obvious, I think, maybe. But it's important for us to remember that God is the protagonist. God's the main person in the story, you might say. God is the one who has authored the story, authored the whole setting. Um, God is the one who has acted first, divine initiative in all these sense. So God is the main actor. He is the one who ties together all the pieces of the story. If you read the Old Testament, you just read bits of it on its own, just read the stories. You read Esther and you go, okay, what was that about? God's not even in there, but it is part of a bigger story. 
And God is even present in a book where God is apparently absent. He's the one who orchestrates events. Indeed, he's the author of the biblical story. To be sure, the Bible tells a human story as well, people playing an essential role from the first chapter of Genesis to the last chapter of Revelation. The Bible also narrates the affairs of the nation, especially Israel. The Bible can be useful for philosophy, psychology, a wider range of other disciplines, but provides, yeah, sure, the sure foundation of a right theology. But at its core, the Bible is a story, a story of God, the story of God, okay? Why are we here today? Are we here for a self-improvement seminar? Why, yes, surprise, bait and switch, we are. No, we're not here for that. We're not here even for a nice community gathering, even though the Christian community is a great community to be a part of. Ultimately, our focus is on who is the God who has made us? Who is the God who redeems us and rescues us? Who is the God who calls us together as one people of God? Who is the God who saves us through the death resurrection of Jesus? Who is this God who has a future for us? And what does that look like? It's important for us to have that grasp of the big story in our heads and the way that we approach our life. If we don't, if we just treat the Bible as a kind of, you know, Christian hobbyism, um, like, you know, like to do a bit of Bible reading during the week, like to, uh, you know, check out a few verses, love those stories, etc., etc. If we sort of treat it as a part in our life that fits into our life, there's a God-shaped hole into my already existing life, rather than we are fitting into God's story, we are fitting into God's purposes... You will be formed by all the other things, all the counterclaims, all the counter-stories that are around us. Whether it's careerism, whether it's what's happening in the economy, whether it's what's your political affiliation and who gets to win, um, there are other stories that will seek to form you. And there'll be more subtle ones than that, a kind of, um, I guess, uh, secular... uh, There's nothing wrong with the idea of the secular, by the way, but we'll talk about that later. But secularist, you might say, um, sense in which we live as though there is no God. We might believe in God, but our actual lives look like pretty much everybody else and it's hard to distinguish um, what our Christian faith means. If you've been reading our newsletter, you might note a little quote that I've been putting in there by Leslie Newbigin, missiologist. Live in such a way that... It raises questions for which the gospel is the answer. Of course, we have to think about it the other way around. What does the gospel call us to? What has the gospel done for us? How has it saved us and changed us and sent us back into the world in a new way to proclaim Christ and to do the work that he's called us to do? So you will be shaped by those other stories. We're always being formed, okay? I, you know, like uh, watching the other night, I, uh, uh, you know, so streaming, great way to be formed morally and ethically, theologically. Thinking just how much I love watching Navy SEALs and people like that. So who's my hero? What does a, what does a real human being look like? Is there someone with the light goggles? And the <coughs> uh, silencer on the sniper and knocking off bad guys? Is that my hero? Or is my hero actually one who gave himself willingly to death, was actually allowed himself to be beaten and defeated by soldiers and give his life faithfully uh, to God 
on a cross. We're always being formed. We've always got questions in our mind, I think, about what, what is it that drives our life? Who are our central heroes? Ultimately, what is our allegiance? Who is our Lord? There are many lords and idols in the world calling for our attention. Now, some people have talked about our current world as having a distrust of big stories, and I think there's an element of that. So you might think, for instance, you know, back um, the fall of the Berlin Wall, we all say that's the end of uh, communism, and so that big story has failed. Then you had financial crises and so forth, so maybe capitalism has failed. So these big stories that shape our lives, so we distrust them. But in the end, some of those things keep on going. Capitalism still thrives um, in a different form, perhaps, but um, we are still shaped by those big stories. And we need to be critical of those stories in the light of the biblical story. All of them. No matter your political preference, no matter your background, the biblical story challenges a lot about our lives and the things we think are good and taken for granted. All of us are invested in some way about the story of progress, aren't we? Certainly it's where our money is invested, extending our lives as long as possible. Medicines, taking a turn from the priority of caring and being with people who are sick to cure at all costs. Body is a machine, we just need to fix it up. There are different senses of the biblical, oh, sorry, of the culture story that we need to look at in the light of the biblical story. Okay, so let's just move on. Goodbye to you. I want to think about the biblical story in the, what we call a story in six acts. And the metaphor we're using there, um, it was Tom Wright again. He's used, used this illustration. It's a good way to think about how we approach the biblical story. Uh, who did Shakespeare at school? Who enjoyed doing Shakespeare at school? Yeah, nerds. <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear, always wonder if it was just like too much for us at that, at that time. Could we really appreciate what we were yeah, being given? Okay, but now that you're all adults, mostly, uh, let's think about what would happen if we actually found a new Shakespearean play. Okay, we've done all the others, we've done all different sorts of adaptations. Um, still a big deal to do Shakespeare, but we find a new one. Fantastic, Okay. Um, bad news, we're missing the final act. We've got a little bit of page which sketches out the end of it. So we have an idea where the story was going, but we're missing this act. So let's say six acts, like we've got here. The fifth act is missing. We're going to have to improvise. As we go through this, just keep that metaphor in the back of your mind. Oh, there was another one zooming in. I forgot about that. Okay. Six acts. Can you read that okay? I realise now that is also quite small. All right. So, first up. Creation, fall, Israel, Messiah, us, and the new creation. All right. So, what's happening here? 
When we think about this story, I want to have two themes in mind, okay? And I think that they carry all the way through. And we'll look at this over the next seven weeks. That's right, seven weeks. Um, so, uh, if you don't like it, I'll see you back in October. So, the two big themes are, and they're not going to pop up on the PowerPoint, so you'll have to write them down or just remember them. The making, the breaking, and the remaking of Shalom. Okay. Now, Bruce talked about Shalom a few weeks back, or oh, probably about six, seven weeks ago now, I'd say. Do you remember what we were talking about there? The idea of peace, harmony, wholeness, the goodness of what God intends for creation, where there is justice, where there is peace and harmony between people and also um, with the creation as well. Given by God, the expectation that that relationship between God and humanity um, can continue. The making, breaking, remaking of Shalom. The second one is thinking about God's desire for to live among human beings in a home, you might say. The end of the book of Revelation, you might remember, that God now dwells with, with, among mortals. That's the goal at the end. So just think about those, those two ideas, the making, breaking, remaking of shalom, that peace and harmony that God intends, and God's dwelling amongst us. So the six acts... Very quickly, Act 1, creation. God is the author of everything. God sets the context for our life and possibilities with him. There's a sense in which we read that, we can see a sense of an ideal, of what God is aiming for. But, and we'll talk about this in two weeks, I think it's a bit of a mistake to jump too quickly to the idea that in the beginning is uh, perfection, We'll go through this long process of eventually seeing redemption and then we're restored back to the garden, in a sense. Restoration, just back, back to where we were. bit odd, it would sort of mean that there's no real progression in history. What was history all about, apart from producing lots of people, if there's no sense in which we move further? The other problem, of course, is that why is it that sin enters into the world? Why is there evil? Why is there struggle or suffering that comes, uh, that, that exists already even in the world, outside of the garden in that picture? So perfection, what God ultimately intends, is not there at the beginning. But in the beginning it is good, and it's very good, meaning it is fit for God's purposes. But creation still awaits its perfection. But it's not going to be a nice straight line, as we know from the rest of the story. It's going to be a long, crooked, difficult and sometimes awful, terrible line uh, to get to that purpose, requiring the Son of God to die on our behalf. So creation awaits its perfection. Adam and Eve, in that story, might say fall short. And that's the second part of the story. God sets a context. God has a world. Things are originally good, you might say. And then human beings screw it up um, very seriously. So 
fall or what we're going to be talking about is God's, about the disruption that happens. God's intentions, human disruption, how God uh, will redeem and rescue us from that um, through history and then ultimately in the sacrifice and the resurrection of Christ. So there's a disruption which is coming, uh, which comes uh, through human action. Uh, missing the mark is what the word means in Greek. Falling short, Romans 3.23, you might remember that. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Okay, so we have our plight. We have a problem. And then we have to see how is it that God works towards a solution. And that solution is through the story of Israel, which is pretty much the Old Testament. We have to think about this is not just being, like I said, a long account of how human beings do bad things. It is rather the beginning of God's purpose, forming a people in the world to bear witness uh, to the reality of who God truly is. That's a long story. It's formation of people. There's a lot of death that happens as well. There is idolatry which is characteristic of the surrounding nations. It also finds its way into Israel because that seems to be a part of the problem of what it means to be a sinful human being. That idolatry, In fact, maybe even idolatry is the most uh, serious problem and that sin is a manifestation uh, of idolatry, of putting ourselves in some form before God. So how is God going to make things right? And that's what we're going to be talking about, the idea of making right, rectification, you might say, God giving the law, the Torah, to shape a new people to understand what it means to live as God requires them. And so you remember, as we just done the series on the character of God, we said, what is God like? God is holy, God is righteous, he's just, he is the one who brings peace, he's the one who brings healing, he is the one who is holy. What does that mean for human beings as well? To actually see and understand what it means to live close to God, with God in their presence, God making his home among his people, God entering uh, his world uh, in a way which is dangerous. When God is present, things can get messy amongst sinful human beings. In the end, you might say there is an element where, you might quite say the experiment, but the project of Israel looks like it's going to fail. Because in the end, its leadership takes um, Israel away from faithfulness to God and sent her into exile. And from there, you have all the promises that will God deliver us. Yes, God's going to do something big and amazing and so forth. But when you get to the Gospels, it still hasn't happened. It feels like it's been delayed. The book of Daniel puts it in that way. That uh, Instead of 70 years, it's going to be a 70 times 7 year exile. And somehow, God has made promises to the people of Israel on behalf of all of humanity. And you would have seen that, you wonder what on earth were those, that smattering of texts that we looked at before. Each, in each of those, there was an element where either Jesus, Paul, um, looks at and draws upon this implied Old Testament story. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, the Torah, 
what? So the promises given to Abraham to be fulfilled in the Messiah, promised Messiah, the King of Israel, such that we receive the Spirit through faith. The presence of God is home amongst us, within us as a community and each of us as part of that community. Implicit story is bigger than just am I saved and what will happen to me when I die? As much as those are questions that we want to have uh, answered, we want to understand what is actually God's purpose for his world. And while I am here, and while I'm alive, and while I am breathing and with other people, what does God want me to do? And when God finally resolves everything, I'm confident I will be there at the end. I will be there at the resurrection of the just and the unjust, among the just. That's what we're looking forward to with the biblical story. Said so we're going to look at this in detail as we go. This is just a kind of a brief overview. So if Israel's story needs a resolution, Israel's story was to bless the nations. Israel's story was to be a witness to who God truly is, the God of creation, the God of the covenant. And if that has come to a, a, um, a difficult and almost desperate end at the right time, in the fullness of time, as Paul might say, God sent his son, that is the Messiah, the son of God, the son of David, the son of man, into the world um, to fulfil the story uh, of Israel. Not to just set everything aside as if that story didn't matter. Don't think I haven't come to, I've come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfil the law and the prophets. Okay, His life is understood in the light of what's gone before. The story might be puzzling as you go, but each step that you take and you look back at, you can actually see this is where the story was going. Now I think I'm get, getting what it's about. And then there's us. I'll come back to that. Act 6. Where is all this going? It's not, as I said before, the Bible story is not about God making creation, creation falling into sin, Israel, 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 Israel something, something. Jesus, Jesus dies, we believe in Jesus, we go to heaven when we die and that's what basically most of history will be until chop the end. If we take the Old Testament seriously, if we take the prophets seriously, we take what we read in Paul seriously, what we're looking forward to is a new creation. Now, God does not abandon his creation. We're not about eschatology, es biblical eschatology, that is thinking about the last things, the end, is about God renewing, saving, restoring, yes, but doing something more. What was that original goal, the perfection of God's creation? Through the winding path of the story and through Jesus, through the sending of the Spirit, ultimately, at the end, the resurrection of the dead and the renewal of creation. That's where it's ultimately going. When we die, Christians think a lot of different things. Okay, You might be surprised by that because it's not the main thing. Some people would say, immediately, in the presence of God, waiting through time for the resurrection. Others will say, Prince of God, bang, you find yourself at the resurrection at the end. Some, you don't know anything and you just continue through time asleep. Christians actually think quite a lot of things and they all have their particular texts. And it's all interesting to discuss. 
But actually, the thing that matters is what we do know. Revelation 21 and 22 saw coming out of heaven a new Jerusalem. I saw a new heavens and a new earth. I saw a new city, a garden city like Eden, the tree of life at the centre of it, the healing of the nations, the treasures, you might say, of the nations brought into this holy city. It's a very different picture to one of like, well, this was all a big mistake and we're off somewhere else. Rather, God is committed to what God has made and God is committed to seeing it brought to its perfection, brought to its fruition, sin, idolatry, all those things expunged uh, from God's world. God, in the end, wins. And he calls and invites us to be part of that through the gospel of Jesus, who died for our sins and rose from the dead. That's the ultimate thing where it's going. So what does that mean for us now? Act 5, we're improvising. We don't know precisely what... um, you know, we don't have it spelled out for us exactly how to live, but we have a lot of things that we need to improvise. As the culture changes around us, we have a, f- a fixed story that we can refer to. The story, yes, we d- sometimes disagree about certain interpretations of things, but we have a story where we look forward to God's new creation and we look back to what God has been doing and intending all along. It's why we read the Old Testament. We'll talk about that. It's why the Torah, the law, is important. It's why Jesus refers back to it. What are, you know, what are the great commandments? Loving your neighbour as yourself, etc. But a whole lot of other stuff too. It's why Paul, talking to the Corinthian church, uh, Gentiles of questionable morals um, who come to Christ and he will refer back to that story as, this is your story too. These are your ancestors, he'll say. So they've been brought into this story. So Act 5, you might say, is a a good deal of improvisation. And one other thing I wanted to do as we think about this, as we look at the stories we make our way through, think about our life set in the framework of different relationships. First and foremost, our relationship to God. Secondly, to our fellow human beings. And then also to the non-human creation. We're not brains on sticks, we're not spirits on sticks, where the material world doesn't matter. If you think about even the beginning of the Bible and and Genesis, uh, chapter 1 and 2, it's a very materialistic kind of thing. Like, where are all the spirits and angels and whatever, all in that? No. The primary meaning of being a human being is to live in this creation that is made, but not to abandon it to sin, not to abandon it to idolatry, but in faith and hope and in love, to await the final victory that God will bring, but to live in the light of that coming victory. What God ultimately intends for the world, the church is to be a foretaste, a witness to what is to come. It's why it's so important for us to gather together as a community, to live with each other well, which includes, as we're talking about, living well with theological and other disagreements, different ideas about what Christians should think, How do we do that in a way which models, in the present time, what God intends for his final community? What the world is called to be, ultimately, the church is called to embody that and live that now. That's part of our gospel witness, that the gospel makes a difference. Okay, so, three words, I think, which kind of sum up what's going on here. 
but just to think about how this changes and uh, through the biblical story. What does it mean to be a human in relationship to God or also Yahweh? Because we're talking first from the Old Testament. I am that I am. I will be who I will be, is the name of God. Um, humans in a right relationship of worship to God is what was originally intended. God's kingdom of love over all things. Human beings interacting with each other. I'll say friendship there for want of a word. You could say fellowship. Um, Friendship is actually a much richer thing than just hanging out with your mates. It's a deeper sense of connection and belonging and loyalty to one another. Um, But that's um, that's what God's original intention is, that we should live well together. So pick another word you think fits better. Let me know what it is. Um, that's fine. And then the tricky one, I don't think you can get away from this one, human beings in relationship to the earth. Uh, well, I've said dominion. Um, you remember from uh, Genesis 1, 26 to 28, that's a human beings made in God's image. We will talk about that. Um, and given dominion over the earth. Okay. That, of course, has been a critique in terms of uh, environmental critiques of human beings, that dominion often gets interpreted as being domination and, you know, the, here is just, you know, the world's just a big resource for us to sort of tear to pieces and, and use as we will. Instead, all of this is in the context of God's love, God's own kingdom of love over his world, his own commitment to his creation with human beings as God's image in the centre of that. Okay, so dominion, loving dominion, but some people say stewardship. That's actually a different idea because stewardship is back relating to God. So dominion needs to be a sense of stewardship back to God. How we live in the material world, how we live with other creatures, um, we need to steward that dominion over them well in such a way that it expresses God's love, his kingdom over all. Okay. Um, I'm not going to go any further there because it's now getting uh, late. I could easily go on. And uh, Bruce has a sniper's dart at the back. So don't worry too much about that. Okay, so just to finish up then, we're going to look at over the next seven weeks the idea of worldviews next week. And then we're going to go through each of those um, six acts, except the idea of creation. What does that mean? How should that um, affect the way we see things in the world? Do we just say go straight to sin? Like the world is evil, everything is bad, everything is idolatrous? Or do we actually start with a doctrine of creation? that Actually, fundamentally, things are good and they have been damaged by the parasite, which is our sinful acts and nature in the world. Okay? We don't start straight with sin, we start with the goodness of creation. And then we have to ask the question, sin, and then lastly, what does it mean for God to actually redeem and save and restore and take beyond all of those things in the future? Um, God does not abandon his creation. He does not abandon us. Our daily lives matter to God, and we need to think about them in the relationship to this story as well. The goodness of what we do a recognition of the way that sin distorts and makes problematic a lot of these things and relationships and things we do at work, but also then thinking about how does God redeem, change these sorts of things in the present time through a people 
empowered by his spirit, living together as a community, sent out in mission to the world, bearing witness to the fact that God alone is the true king. And Jesus, at the right hand of God, Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The most quoted text in the New Testament, the ascension, the rule of Christ, is at the centre of what our faith means in the present time. So hopefully you think, yeah, I want to hear more about that. Um, I do, so if I'm just sitting here talking to a chair with a mannequin of me there as well, I will be here. I hope that you will be here also. All right. May I pray for us? Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are part of such a great story, the drama of Scripture, the amazing account of your provision for us, your love for us, your great care and your commitment to us. That you do not abandon your creation, but that you're committed to it, that through the covenant with Abraham, the calling and rescue of the people of Israel, the 12 tribes, the giving them of a place in the world, living under your rule. That despite their failures, through them came the promise of the Messiah of Israel and the world's true Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, who lived a faithful life as a faithful Israelite, faithful unto death, who died innocently, faithfully to you in the covenant, dying for our sins. And then rising victorious, you raised him from the dead to be seated at your right hand. And so even in the midst of a world where evil still stalks its way through, we know that the victory is assured. Your son sits at your right hand, that your spirit has been sent out into the world. We thank you that as we witness to that story, we witness to the death and resurrection of Jesus to his faithful life as well, leading to that, and to his purpose for human beings in the world. As we witness to these things, we ask that you will help us to give an account of what you have done and what you are doing and what you're calling us all to. As we gather around your table and we break bread in recognition and remembrance of that covenant, new covenant in your blood and the broken body. We remember that and we seek to live faithfully in the light of that until you come again. We thank you for that great story and the great hope ahead and the meaning that it gives us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Wind it up or start the helicopter on the two signal. Okay. <laughs> Please stay with us now. Please uh, come and uh, grab a cup of coffee as you go out into the world this week. Remember God's story. Fill yourself with the knowledge of Scripture. Pray for God's world. Pray for the people that you meet. Can I also add? Uh, you know, we talk about, you know, we're a small community here. I'm not out to go and get transfer growth. There are people out in the world that you have contact with. There are people that you meet day by day. Can I ask, pick two people. 
that you're concerned about and pray for them for the next three months. Pray that they will come to know Christ, meaning they have come to know, love, serve him and enter a life of discipleship. If you think that matters for you, then I trust that you think that matters also for them. So can I ask that for you? Two people, next 12 weeks. Let's pray for those people. Welcome them into God's community. Amen.